Hello everyone, it's April 12th, 2022. This week's spin launch is back in the news. They've got NASA's attention, so maybe they're onto something. Either way, the test should be interesting. Then we have an update on the multiple wet dress attempts for SLS. That's where we are with that. So let's do the show and lift off. In News Clear the Tower, welcome to episode 354 of the Overall Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Well, we got a whole bunch of people on station, so that's cool. Congratulations to the Axiom mission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hear they had a they had a little bit of a delay due to a camera issue, I think, during docking. I believe that's what it was. But uh, it was twenty one hours uh between launch and when they arrived. So mm. that's it's not bad. It's not, you know, a Soyuz, but that's like kind of the best part. You know, like okay, so like you're in a plane and you're going somewhere, right? But uh-huh. you're kinda of like not looking forward to it, but you get to just enjoy the plane ride. And I mean this is space, so that's probably <laughs> and they don't have any real responsibilities. They don't have to do all the stuff that they're gonna be doing on station. They so they do get have to just a tiny kind of, shared toilet though. Yeah, well, I mean that part does suck. I mean, I'm not saying it's great being cooped up in a capsule, but you get to look out the window and not do much else for twenty one right. hours yeah, before the real it? work begins. Uh, this is uh this is zero world problems yeah, like you say dragon's not a bad place to spend some time i mean after all <laughs> you could pay or not pay but i'm sure people will would yeah. and will pay for free flyer missions which would be all that and so well what it wouldn't have oh i guess isaacman paid for it you're right yeah that's why i tried, oh, yeah. I tried oh, to I change my freight like yeah i changed yeah. my phrasing midstream because i yeah. was like wait a minute yeah but he yeah, yeah, he, yeah. so he did buy it so yeah yeah but i mean uh individual paying customers i guess uh mm-hmm. for each seat the the way that these uh three people that mike la are taking on orbit um are just paying for paying for it uh okay so so another thing that we can talk about quickly is um we were talking a few episodes ago in a short and sweet about uh all the vehicles that got bumped off of isa soyuz's um, and we found out this week that uh, Sentinel 1C actually got uh, reassigned to a Vega C. Um, so, you know, nothing much more exciting than that. But is uh, uh, pretty uh, annoyed with uh, Sentinel 1B failing and then immediately losing a ride for Sentinel 1C. Um, <laughs> so uh, uh, it's, it's pretty cool that they can uh, put it on a different vehicle. Um, it will be... Uh, really cool to see Vega C launch, uh, I think this summer. I mean, it, you know, it's always cool to see a new, a new rocket launch, but in this case, uh-huh. like it's, it's actually like filling a, a gap that was created. So it's going to be pretty cool to see this thing launch for the first time and then immediately get pressed into emergency service. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they will wind up actually having a, a faster launch cadence than they otherwise would have. Yeah. Cause that was one thing I've been thinking of lately with, with, so many of these uh, providers not going with, you know, Soyuz anymore. Then Amazon going and buying, you know, a million launches. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> you know, with, with all the new launchers coming online, there was that mismatch between supply and demand. Hopefully this will, those two things will bring them a little closer yeah. in line. Uh, there's still going to be a lot of these launch vehicles companies going out of business, I'm sure. But tell me more about the Amazon purchase because I saw headlines, but I didn't look into it. Oh, I think it was the largest purchase of uh, flights ever, and they basically bought a bunch from ULA, a bunch from Blue Origin, and a bunch from uh, Ariane Spas, and none from SpaceX, and none from SpaceX <laughs> for yeah. for like communications for satellites? the Kuiper. Sorry for the Kuiper uh, constellation. Oh, so. okay. yeah. Well, yeah, I I really like the fact that <laughs> they didn't buy any launches on SpaceX. It's, I know. That's very funny. 
spin launch uh, there back in the news. Um, they have signed a contract with NASA for a test flight later on this year. And I guess it's it's using the same launch that they used previously. Obviously, they haven't built the big final product yet. That's who knows when or if that's going to happen. Um, but uh, they're going to be doing a suborbital test. We don't know what the payload is, but basically uh, it's there to be What's what I'm looking for? Pathfinding, I suppose. Yeah, is that the right sure. term? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, test the payload, see if things work actually. Um, and somehow they're going to recover it. I mean, again, I don't know what the nature of the payload is, but something that can withstand, yeah. you know, ungodly uh, G's. A, a force yeah. sensor <laughs> and a battery. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this was, I don't know about you guys, but this kind of surprised me about how much official backing and kind of credibility you implicitly get when NASA's behind your. Uh, your, your project enough to uh, want to actually launch things on it, um, admittedly suborbital at this point. But yeah, so th- this this is part of the NASA's Flight Opportunities Program, which is really when they just do a lot of different tests of different things to support spaceflight more generally, but through suborbital flights. So when like small experiments are flying on a New Shepard or Virgin Galactic launch, uh, a lot of those are through this Flight Opportunities Program. And so uh, that's cool that it's going to happen later this year. Um, admittedly, suborbital. I have to imagine it'll be at least. Uh, um, or what do you think? Do you think they'll actually launch this thing farther and faster than they did with their previous test, which was kind of just like a short little, <laughs> a short little heave? Sure. I mean, it's the same vertical assembly, right? They're not. They're not building the the big one yet. With this version that they have now, I believe I can't remember it, but it was only running at some fraction of fraction, its. Fraction, yeah. They could ramp it up. And since it's called suborbital and not just like a, I don't know, a sounding rocket, that mm. kind of makes me think that it's going to go further. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and guessing that they'll push it a little further. The launch system, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like Mike in the chat has a great line here where it's a good opportunity to test the fluid mechanics of all the liquefied payloads. Because <laughs> like, yeah, like yeah. I said, it's got to sustain tens of thousands of Gs. Like, I mean, this is the thing that people have been talking about right that it's accelerated in this vacuum at least when you have a full scale thing you're going to get tens of thousands of g's you're going to have a uh, uh, a vacuum to air transition once it actually leaves the launcher Uh, that's going to be very abrupt and significant and that the payload which is going i believe it would be going a few kilometers per second upon release suddenly that moment of inertia on your lever arm of your uh, launch system, the spin launcher, the spin launcher <laughs> within like a millisecond is going to change and just structurally being able to withstand that. And so there's a lot of things where people are worried about whether or not this is still legitimate <laughs> uh, type oh, of... Right. And and the, the real crux of that comes from here are the problems, but where's the benefit? Um, and actually, our, the Discord was going on about this. Chris said that, uh, yeah, it's as likely that the problem that's being solved here is just a lack of angular, angular yeetage. Boy, that's a lot easier to read than it is to pronounce. <laughs> uh, which, you know, is, is like a, a flippant, funny gag, but like really the only, the only benefit that I really see is that you don't have a first stage to recover. Your first stage stays on the ground. It's going to be really interesting to see if it, if it's actually worth it. Like, you know, they wouldn't be dumping time and money into this if they didn't think that they'd close the business case. But like, 
I haven't seen that business case. <laughs> so it'll be yeah. really interesting to see if they were right uh, in their analysis. But, you know, business case aside, like, I think it's really cool to have a, a wild and wacky uh, vehicle launcher. It's propellant not free. The... Yeah, exactly. I mean, your propellant is electrons, but we can discount those. Like, it, it's, it's, it's really, well, probably electrons and bearings they probably gonna eat up bearings pretty quickly but like yeah it's it's really interesting to see something weird that i don't necessarily think is a good idea happening like i i love seeing bad ideas happen and what i love even more is things that i thought was a bad idea turning out to be a good idea so let's let's hope that we get the the best best case scenario here and and let me just clarify before I, I realized I said something that sounds incorrect. <laughs> the first stage is propellant free, at least. Yeah. They would still have <laughs> yeah, propellant on an yeah. upper stage. But. Don't add us. <laughs> mm -hmm. So assuming that technically this is feasible, the real question to me is what can you launch on this? I mean, they can survive uh, the flight, right? I mean, how many different, what are the use cases, I guess, mm -hmm. is what I want to know. Yeah, this, this would not be the type of stuff that uh, you would typically fly on other rockets this would be something that you would have to have designed to survive a spin launch launch yeah because i mean think of all the satellites that are in space now how many of those could be launched with this like i'm assuming it's pretty much zero mm. so yeah so you'd have to redesign payloads um significantly satellites or whatever they're going to be putting up that's a whole other side industry that would have to kind of come up along with it i guess um or that they would have to take on that responsibility, right? right. And you have to design the payload uh, according to the launcher's needs, um, or at least much more so than you normally do. Yeah, but you know, but that that might be what works out. If you could get it to be super cheap, and then you just be like, okay, well, we're a company where we design our Earth observation satellites that are a little more expensive to build because they have to be able to withstand extreme amount of acceleration but at the same time the fact that they can be spin launched or yeeted to orbit means that we'll get that money back by doing that mm -hmm. you know <laughs> i mean i don't know if it'll work only time will tell so uh let's translate then on over to a new topic uh the sls wet dress rehearsal or its modification i guess uh so there were several attempts made since the last episode right today's the 10th uh well there were some attempts made prior to it actually mm -hmm. um and then there have been some attempts since then still nothing they've had one thing after another so i guess we should just go down the list of what problems they've had uh so starting on april 2nd there was uh some severe weather there were some lightning strikes there were four lightning strikes and there was one apparently that hit the what's it called the catenum is that the right word well, between the strike towers catenary catenary um but apparently it did not affect the vehicle but obviously that kind of weather is not great for doing uh, a white dress rehearsal so then on april 3rd there was a fan and um a backup fan failure so basically there's uh th there are these fans that they have they're i guess situated right on the launch tower that are there uh to create positive pressure to prevent the buildup of uh the liquid hydrogen and liquid inside oxygen. the the mobile launch platform i thought it was basically a, a life support system inside the launch support platform the, what do you mean by life the support system? So the the mobile launch launch platform technically like there there's nobody in it during the launch, mm -hmm. but it still has all of this volume inside of it. 
and I believe most of the enclosed volume is for people. And so oh, okay. it's, they're already enclosed so that, you know, you can air condition them or something like that. Uh, but you know, there's probably also some environmental controls for the engine or whatever. And so they, they keep a positive pressure inside those volumes. And so it's not life support because there's nobody in it, but it's, you know, kind of the same idea as a, as like okay. a positive pressure laboratory or something that makes sense i see i was thinking it, it was just there on the platform to prevent gases from building up period although they are exposed because i thought it was like outside but maybe you know mm -hmm. the air couldn't carry them away quickly enough but you never seem to really notice that being a problem yeah. so it makes more sense what you're saying that it's a bunch of oscillating those. fans just like standing around yeah. the launch platform yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a couple of box fans on a really janky uh chain of extension cords <laughs> I'll admit, David, I was kind of envisioning I, I, the same thing. I, I didn't quite know how these were set up, but just the fact that they're referring to positive pressure. If, if these yeah. were external, you'd think it's just fans blowing stuff away from the platform is how I would phrase it. I mean, but you could still – actually, I guess you couldn't create positive pressure. I was thinking like you could still sort of create positive pressure. I you mean, definitely it, do it, create a, a region of positive pressure. Yeah. It's just very small. Yeah, it's 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 I think referring to an open space as having positive pressure in this context is just typically you would just say the fans are just blowing stuff away. Fans are blowing, yeah. <laughs> you know, as opposed to having your enclosed space where you could literally bring in a barometer and measure <laughs> the difference easily. Well, I guess a better way to put it is just any enclosed volume that could uh, yeah. retain those gases that yeah. you know that's dangerous no matter like yep. if there's a person there or not so those fans that were needed to be there um the first one failed then they used to back up that failed as well turns out it was just a circuit breaker apparently but then they discovered another problem <laughs> so on april 4th nasa's uh blog they put out a lot of updates and so uh initially there was a vendor that they were there was an outage of nitrogen uh that's referenced, but that was resolved. That seemed to be kind of small on this totem pole of problems that they encountered. And then they had to troubleshoot a uh, temperature limit issue for um, the, the liquid oxygen, which delayed things a few hours, which had the knock-on effect that then later a vent valve prevented the loading of the core stage. So I think they got half of the locks loaded and the locks, uh, the, the locks tank sits above the hydrogen tank in SLS's core stage. And then when they were going to get ready to start loading the hydrogen, they could not open this valve and later learned that it was physically configured into a closed position so it couldn't be commanded to open remotely. And so then they're like, okay, you know, shut it down because at this point we're getting close to the shift change. So it's the end of the day for some of these people. And they're like, well, we're hitting a big problem right before uh, the shift change. So let's just cancel, call it a day. And so they were able to, you know, un uh, uh, close the, the the valve that was physically stopping there, this vent valve. And then there was the helium check valve that was discovered in the upper stage. Yeah. So then there was that helium valve in uh, the interim cryogenic propulsion stage that is uh, used to prevent the escape of helium, which is used on board uh, to purge and drain the propellant lines. So I guess um, this is a valve that just, you know, prevents that from escaping the vehicle itself. So what they're going to do, and I think that this is a, like as a result of this problem, the helium check valve, is that they're actually going to do the next wet dress rehearsal with a minimum propellant operations load. So they're going to load less propellant. They didn't say how much, but they're still going to go through that motion, but just not fully load the thing, which is an interesting compromise. But they said that it shouldn't affect things too much because mostly the wet dress rehearsal is more to check out procedure um, and make sure that things in terms of software are working. I guess not so much having to do a 
full propellant load. To me, it seems like you would want to do that as well because you never know what's going to come up with something like this maybe. Exactly. Make sure the fans are running. Make sure your procedures are in such a way that you catch if a valve has been locked closed before <laughs> you try to command it to open, things like that. <laughs> like what if something unforeseen happens once you do have a full propellant load? Um, they won't know that if they do a minimum propellant load. Yeah, but and then I guess, you know, they're making the best out of this though still because it's with all the different complexity of the operations that are happening, all the different things that go on, at least they're still testing the line share of it even in this minimum propellant operations version of the dress rehearsal. Yeah, so that's so that's where the wet dress stands now. Yeah. Hey, we didn't even complain about how expensive and over the top yeah. <laughs> this is to encounter this many problems. I like Eric Berger will just be like, <laughs> and here's uh, yet another problem with the SLS uh, mobile launch platform. Did you know that this cost over $1 billion to uh, outfit uh, to make it SLS compatible? It's just very... Oof. Which, like I said, I've seen that thing and it doesn't look... I guess it's impressive, but doesn't look like it should cost a billion dollars. I mean, mm. it's it's just a bunch of scaffolding, it seems. But no, a, a billion does seem a lot for just a piece of infrastructure being modified. Mm -hmm. It's big, but like you can... I don't know. I guess buildings are not as complicated and complex, but... You know, you can build a building for a lot less than a billion dollars. and So I don't care if this thing's really large. It's just, it's got to be, I think, a, a combination of the details of the complexity of actually setting this up. And then just, I think a lot of that cost is just mismanagement. You know, delays cost money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you got to keep all those people on the payroll. You, know, you might not be, you might be duplicating work. I might be doing a number of different things. And so it just seems like it's mismanagement. I can't imagine. Did they actually earmark like a billion dollars for up, uh, outfitting this? Or was it like 200 million and then the cost, you know, increased by a factor of five? So, you know, like I don't want to, I don't want to make a, a value judgment on this amount of money, but I want to remind you that this is definitely not a building. Like it's a building sized machine. And when they're doing these updates, the amount of precision that's involved, because there's a rocket that's going to go on it, is so much higher than for, you know, a skyscraper or a big building. Like, if you had to build a skyscraper that occasionally had explosives sitting on top of it, and it had to safely interface with, with that rocket, like, like, it, it, that, it doesn't seem that crazy to me. I don't, I don't think. I mean, like, when when you when you throw in not only engineering but then precision requirements, it just and like the whole thing moves. I don't know. It doesn't seem. But that it already ex it's yeah. I know. I know. And and that's the thing. Like when I said a building, I just meant yeah. that you know it's, yeah. it's it's physically large, but you can build physically large things, and the the structure itself right. already existed. Right. But I'm I'm yeah. at least finding the total cost of it was s or sorry, this is ML two. The total cost of ML2 is estimated to be $450 million. And so this would be for SLS block. 1B. So it costs more to update it than it did to build it in the first place? It it, it costs more to uh, modify ML1 for SLS block 1 than it's estimated to build ML2, which is for SLS block 1B. Okay, well, I guess I guess my question would be how much did ML1 cost to build in the first place? Because of course ML2 is going to be cheaper because they've already done. I don't know. I don't know. That does really sound. Uh, okay. Okay. All right. 
Dennis, I'm I'm emotionally on board with your reaction now. Okay. <laughs> well, think of it this way: if I mean, and, and I hate to you know like bring in SpaceX, but like if they had to build something similar or much more advanced than that, I'm sure they could do it for a lot less money. And I realize you know we're talking about apples and oranges almost when you're talking about yeah. the government versus the private sector, especially SpaceX. But still, it wouldn't have to cost that much money. But that is par for the course when it comes to the way NASA operates, I guess. So. <laughs> It's that classic. I mean, I, this isn't the first time, right, in spaceflight where it costs more to modify something than to just build a new one from scratch, right? I mean, that that's why yeah. uh, Enterprise didn't become an orbiter. Yes. Yeah, so, so it looks like the next attempt will be on April fourteenth with a call to stations on the twelfth. So. I guess they get everyone together, then they prep over the course of a day, and then they do the actual test on the 14th, two days later. I guess that's when we can expect to see the next attempt, and I hope it goes well. Maybe this will be the one. Well, given the, the, the big picture timeline of SLS, you know, a week here and there, it's, it's just a, dro- a drop in the bucket. So this week, we're going to do four short and sweets. Let's do the first one. And Ben, what is that? All right. DARPA funds in-space manufacturing development. The agency's novel orbital moon manufacturing materials and mass-efficient design, uh, a.k.a. GNOME4D or NOMAD uh, program, will develop proofs of concept in material science and design technologies related to producing structures in orbit around the moon and will not involve building anything on the lunar surface. Eight industry and university research teams have been given NOMAD contracts. In phase one, the research teams are tasked to meet stringent efficiency targets for building a megawatt-class solar array, while phase two will support radio frequency reflectors and the final phase, infrared reflectors. Next up, Spaceport Camden. Back from the grave? While more than seven years and more than $10 million have been spent on Spaceport, Observers figured it was finished after 72% of voters last month cast ballots in favor of repealing the county's ability to purchase the 4,000 acres of land needed for the project. However, the project manager, who is also Camden County's administrator, recently had organized a public workshop where citizens heard a pitch from private investors hoping to revive the project. Some of the project's critics have expressed their continued opposition to it, and it'll be interesting to see whether this meeting and the new approach will have an effect on the future of the spaceport. Next up, Warp Space comes to the U.S. Japanese startup Warp Space is creating an intrasatellite laser communication system, which it will be bringing to the U.S. Warp Space will be establishing a presence in the States and competing for military and government contracts. Currently only operating one test CubeSat in LEO, Warp Space plans to launch three satellites in the next three years into medium-Earth orbit. These satellites will act as a relay between existing satellites in orbit and ground stations in order to facilitate rapid downlink at high rates of transmission. The first three satellites deployed will use a radio transmission, but as optical technology improves, Warp Space will transition to laser-based communications. And fourthly, Astroscale preparing to restart demonstration. Uh, LCD, or end-of-life services by Astroscale, D, was launched in March 2021. It is a demo mission with a servicer and client already stacked together. The intention was to show their magnetic docking capability multiple times with various levels of difficulty. Indeed, several tests were successfully completed before a docking attempt in January was aborted due to many and some undisclosed issues, including the failure of four of the eight engines. Bradford Space provided these engines and CEO Ian Fisher 
Christianbaum says these issues do not relate to and are not a result of the design or build of the thrusters and we have full confidence in our products. The non-engine issues, still undisclosed, have been cleared and the servicer has now approached to within spitting distance of the client. Astroscale is confident they can now approach to 160 meters and continue testing. The immediate objective is to validate a low power radio search sensor that allows for relative navigation. And then they will build a plan for what is likely to be their final capture. Good luck, Astroscale. All right, so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have a bunch of winners. We have Cy Kyle, Desky Miller, Peter McMalley, the Greek, Chris Steigarfield, aka Steigarfield, um, and Uncle Willie and Leon. So we have like a lot of people. Yeah, we got Uncle Willie this time. We we yeah. missed him last last week. And uh, uh, yeah, the clue is swat that fly. So what is that in reference to? I think I get it now. I'm yeah. well. I like I can obviously see ahead of time. You know mm-hmm. what the what it's in reference to, but it totally makes sense. This is not a hard to figure out clue. I, at least I don't think so. It, yeah, it's a pretty straightforward clue, but it's. Uh, I don't know. This this is a, a topic that I love. So uh, this week in spaceflight history is the 12th of April, 1985. It was the launch of STS-51D. STS-51D on board had two satellites, uh, Telesat-1, also known as ANIC-C1, um, which uh, also had a, a PAM-D upper, like a, like a kick stage on it. And that's uh, like two spacecraft kind of buckled together, which is why I called it out. The other vehicle on board was Syncom 4-3, also known as LESAT-3, spelled L-E-A-S-A-T. The the Syncom vehicles, the the LESAT vehicles, had a built-in kick motor. So it's like everything all in one. Both of these vehicles were built by Hughes. um, And this was such a great topic to research because Hughes has got a, like a, um, a, a blog, like a history blog. Uh, it's HughesSCGHeritage.com and it, it's so good. Um, it, it's just full of all these stories from, uh, engineers and, and people working on, uh, Hughes projects back then. And, uh, it, it goes from like 1960 to 2001 or something. And, uh, just very, very good, uh, like oral history project kind of stuff. And so I, I'm very grateful, uh, to Hughes being willing to, to pay for, uh, this kind of, of historical archiving. Cause it's just, it's invaluable. And, and to me, it's incredibly entertaining, right? Like I don't, I don't really have, uh, the, the history credentials to actually find this like valuable in the same way as like a historian would, but like at, at very least I can find it entertaining. So, um, Lisa three, um, I'm, I'll probably end up calling it F three as well. Uh, that's, that's the internal designation, uh, just names on names on names. Uh, but LESAT-3 was preceded by LESAT-2, and then after LESAT-2, LESAT-1. <laughs> uh, LESAT-1 was delayed due to a launch cancellation, but uh, both uh, LESAT-2 and 1 launched successfully. Uh, LESAT-3 was a, a little bit of a different story. So I've got a great um, YouTube video that will be in the in the show notes that shows you what what this is supposed to look like and what it's supposed to look like is basically a frisbee so the the vehicle is is really big um it took up a quarter of the length of shuttle's 
uh, cargo bay. It took up all of its diameter and it weighed one third of the payload capacity. So th this thing is, is really gigantic. And so launching it like a Frisbee, it might actually be the only way to launch something this big. I'm not sure. Um, but but yeah. basically, I, I call it a Frisbee. I mean, they, they all call it a Frisbee because it's spin-stabilized. And most vehicles launched by shuttle are spin-stabilized with their spin axis parallel to their ejection axis or their spin axis being perpendicular to the long axis of the shuttle's payload bay. However, uh, the LeeSats... Uh, have their spin axis parallel to the bay. Um, so they are ejected while rotating sideways. <laughs> it's really kind of cool. And so this YouTube video shows you, um, I believe LeeSat 5 is, uh, yeah, that's, that's 51i. So that's LeeSat 5. Or no, 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 that's, that's LeeSat 4 being deployed. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's really kind of a cool thing. The the vehicle the the satellite sits in this cradle uh that's installed in the payload bay. Inside that cradle there's this arm um that actually attaches to the spacecraft. It's got five contact points along this curved arm, uh, because it's it's curving around the, the drum of the spacecraft, right? And each of these five contact points has got a pin that captures the vehicle um, four of them the pin is motor driven to to retract it and then one is explosive um, that explosive pin is actually what separates the the spacecraft from the cradle and initiates the deployment sequence so the i, I called it an arm it's, it's not actually an arm it's just like the base of the cradle the arm doesn't actually move w what happens is once those pins are released there's a spring um, that is offset to one side of the spacecraft, right? If, if the spring was right in the middle of the spacecraft, it would push it out without spinning it. But by setting it off just to the side, it, it adds a spin and it ejects it out of the cradle. It, yeah, it's, it's really a simple design. And I'm going to get into the design of this a bit more because it's, it's really lovely. But this spin stabilization is not something that you want to tweak, uh, at all if possible. So they have to position shuttle, uh, pointed in the direction that they want this thing to stabilize itself in. Um, and also the, the payload bay is facing the earth. If that makes a difference, uh, it definitely makes a difference for photography purposes because it, it makes it look really pretty. Um, so yeah, the spin is there for, uh, stabilizing the spacecraft. Uh, but it's also nice because it helps distribute the heat from the sun or rather distribute the cooling from space. Um, and it also, um, helps, uh, settle the propellant side. It kind of does its own, uh, ullage burn as it were. After the vehicle separates from the cradle, uh, two redundant timers start. They're little micro switches, uh, that unlatch. And those micro switches start the two redundant timers and the timers start counting down. And as they reach different mile markers, they issue commands to the rest of the vehicle. So after 80 seconds, the omni antenna is extended. So an omnidirectional antenna is just like a, like a 
car radio antenna, right? It's just a long, uh, a long stick of an antenna that can receive, uh, and transmit in multiple directions. So it's low power, but omnidirectional. So you don't have to worry about pointing it. Yeah. The low gain that the OES reference. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the Omni antenna gets, uh, deployed after 80 seconds and it just, flips up. After six minutes, uh, the vehicle fires up uh, some small motors and spins itself up to 30 RPM. It was deployed when it when it deploys, it's about 1.7 RPM. So we go up to 30 RPM. And then after 45 minutes, uh, they start up the uh, the kick motor, uh, which is inside the vehicle, and they boost up into a higher orbit. What's really cool is I, d- I didn't see this cited in Wikipedia and I just love, okay, conversely, I hate doing this week in spacewide histories that wind up just being a restatement of the Wikipedia article, not because Wikipedia is bad, but because like, I want to go find new information. I want to learn. Um, and so in this case, I don't think that the Wikipedia, uh, tells you what this kick motor is. Uh, but Hughes has my back and they actually uh, specify it. It's actually a Minuteman three upper stage, which is like cool to like reuse stuff, but also like that's a significant enough uh, engine that you, you think it would be, uh, it would be cited more often. But the, uh, this, this upper stage is like right in the middle of the vehicle after they use the engine they eject the the spent casing and when the casing gets ejected it unlatches two more micro switches and those switches cut power to the timers because we don't need them anymore um so the uh the minuteman engine the solid motor doesn't get all the way up to a geostationary transfer orbit it just raises its apogee quite a bit they continue to do uh burns at perigee using the the liquid engines uh, to boost up into an even higher altitude uh, getting up to uh, geostationary orbit this is not a uh, an integrated propellants kind of vehicle it's got that solid uh, rocket motor and then it's got bipropellant engines that do these big perigee burns and then it's got uh, monopropellant engines that do the the spin-up burn as well as all of the the pointing kind of stuff so uh, they use their bipropellant liquid engine to get uh, up to uh, geostationary orbit. And then once they're up there, they're able to circularize, circularize their orbit using that engine. Once they've circularized, they rotate the vehicle so that spin axis is now north-south, right? Because they don't need to point the big engines in the right direction anymore. Um, they de-spin the antenna platform because this entire time it's spinning at 30 RPM. So they de-spin the antenna platform and they deploy the UHF antennas. I'll have photos in the show notes. My favorite one is from, I believe it's LeSat 5 in an anechoic chamber testing their UHF antennas. And these UHF antennas, um, Chris in the chat says they look like warp nacelles and they really, really do. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they are on arms that are not horizontal, right? They're not reaching out 180 degrees from each other. They're canted upwards. So there's maybe like 60 degrees between, or maybe like a hundred degrees between them. Um, and then at the end of those arms are the UHF antennas, which point 
perpendicular to the arms. They point in one direction off to the side and they look like ray guns or um, the Star Trek, the original series warp nacelles or something. They're really <laughs> beautiful in this very retro way. Um, and so they uh, point towards the earth uh, and in a static position while the drum continues to spin. The vehicle is one of those that's split into two separate sections, a despun section and a spun section. And the spun section is shaped like a drum and it's got solar panels around the entire perimeter. Okay. So that, that gets us into the operational life after which we don't really care too much until something else goes wrong. Then it becomes interesting again. But this this whole deployment sequence, uh, flinging it out of the shuttle bay like a Frisbee, is a little... It's notable. It's a little wacky. I want to quote directly from this oral history blog post. It said, when Hughes first presented the Frisbee ejection concept to NASA, the initial reaction was, you're going to do what? <laughs> <laughs> and in, in fact, this was so unprecedented that uh, NASA and Hughes worked together to develop new safety standards specifically for this type of deployment. Hughes, wanting to um, make this as easy as possible, spent a lot of thought and effort reducing the number of interfaces between shuttle uh, and this spacecraft cradle. They, they wanted this to be really dead simple. They didn't want anything to be able to go wrong. So they had uh, only a small amount of power being transferred from uh, shuttle to the spacecraft. Well, actually to the, to the cradle. Um, they needed to keep the batteries inside the spacecraft charged, and then they needed to run heaters inside the spacecraft and inside of the cradle. The only communication interfaces at all um, were a standard called standard switch panel, which is for initializing deployment. It's basically a yes or a no. Um, and then there was also a little more complex, an MDM, uh, a multiplexer demultiplexer uh, that allowed them to monitor the release pin positions as well as the battery temperatures on board. And that's it. Uh, th those are the only electrical connections. Physical connections were also really kept to a minimum. They had five contact points between the cradle and the shuttle, um, two on each of the longerons, which are the, the rails that run front to back in the in the shuttle bay. If you're looking out the windows from the crew compartment up front, they, they run front to back. Um, so there are two contact points on the longerons and there's one on the keel at the, at the bottom of the bay. And uh, that's it. This this cradle is reusable. They can. Uh, drop a spacecraft in it, install it on shuttle, uh, and then take it out of shuttle and load another one in it. And the, the Laysat spacecraft was highly optimized for shuttle. Um, it, it was not a, oh yeah, we can fly it on whatever you got kind of machine. Um, it, that, that idea of limiting yourself to it, one and only one launcher uh, does bring a lot of risk. And indeed, there was a lot of drama with uh, Lisat after Challenger. Um, and, and I think we're going to have to talk about that on another show. But from that expenditure of risk, you purchase a huge amount of capability and also a huge cost reduction. Remember, the way NASA build people was Anybody who can fit in this payload bay is going to share the cost of the launch. Um, and 
while Hughes is taking up, uh, or, you know, Syncom is taking up quite a bit of capacity, there's still plenty of room for other people. And just like this launch, you know, they had another, uh, uh, another person riding along with them, but they, uh, they get to share the cost of the launch, uh, which also is one of the cheapest launches in history for this class of payload. And then they get to fly a, a just a gigantic vehicle. So like the, the, the solar cells alone, uh, were like outclassing every other solar cell, I, I guess, probably, you know, in their class of non-deployable cylindrical solar cells, but they had a huge amount of power to work with, um, which was not something they had been uh, expecting or, or used to at this point. All right. So let's, let's go back uh, to 51D. Uh, they successfully deployed Annex C1 or, or Telesat 1. And then, you know, they successfully deployed Lisat, but the Omni antenna didn't deploy, right? Like 80 seconds later, they're going, wait, where's the, where, where's the antenna? So they figured, okay, something's wrong, but it's probably just the Omni antenna is stuck, right? Like that's not that big of a deal. But, but then the spin up didn't happen and they go, okay, something's really wrong. And on the ground, Hughes knows right away, this is an issue with the timers. If both of these things failed, it's the common element between them is the timers. It's got to be the timers are not issuing commands or maybe they're issuing commands and they're just not getting out. But that, that would be more complicated, right? Because that means that you've got m failures on multiple communication lines. So they, they decide these timers just haven't started up uh, or uh, have failed to, uh, to issue commands. What's fishy about that is that there are two timers and those timers are driven by two different switches. So, so it can't, it can't be the switches as well. We have to go back farther to find a single point failure. And indeed there is those switches. Um, they're, they're a plunger type switch and those plungers are depressed by an actuator arm and they're both on the same actuator arm. So, okay, there's our single point failure. This arm reaches out, uh, through a slot in the solar panels. Um, so it, you know, when it's sitting in the cradle, that arm is pressed in. When it gets released, the, the plunger is able to, to spring outward and unlatch those, uh, those switches. So if the arm's stuck, uh, the, the switches would both fail out and they would have no idea that they'd been deployed. So this is where we get to the, to the fly swatter. So they come up with the idea, Hey, NASA's willing to do some extra work to, to fix this issue, what can we do? And they come up with what sounds like a very Apollo 13 kind of, uh, kind of fix. They grab their procedures books, they tear off the plastic covers and they tape them to the end of SSRMS, the, uh, the robotic arm. It, you know, it's actually, uh, two covers. So it's like two fly swatters. Um, but like when you look at this thing, it's very, uh, it really looks like uh, like one of the crazy concoctions that they've built on ISS or like the air filter contraption that they used on mm -hmm. Apollo 13. Sure. This this kind of thing is just the most delightful 
part of spaceflight that that I could possibly imagine. And thanks to Hughes, we have a, a really fantastic image that was taken uh, on orbit that'll be in the show notes. And I, I wasn't able to find too much about the design of these things, but they're clearly two different designs. Um, they took their uh, their plastic covers and folded them into like two in, into a long rod shape. And then they put two 90 degree folds um, to make sort of a U shape. And then they taped in some uh, some longitudinal pieces of paper that, you know, kind of form like a ladder shape. And that's that's one of them. And then the other one, I think they did the same thing. But instead of it's hard to tell if they folded it into a U shape or not, but they attached it using some jacketed wires uh, that then got wrapped in duct tape. And you can see like the ends of the wire sticking out. It's just lovely that they've got these two different options. We we're not exactly sure which one's going to be best. We'll do one that kind of converges down to one point, but it might be a little more floppy. So we'll do the other one, which has two points and, and should be a little more stable. And, and they take this thing on to the, to the end effector of Canada arm. Okay. So, um, so NASA's willing to, to do all this work and they, they tape the fly swatters on and they maneuver closer to the vehicle and they reach out. And from my understanding, they stick the, the plastic fly swatters against the vehicle. And as it's rotating, this arm gets snagged <laughs> by oh. the, uh, <laughs> by the fly swatters. They successfully snagged the arm more than once. And they said that they saw multiple times when they snagged the arm, they saw mechanical movement, but nothing happened. The, the vehicle didn't do anything. And, and I kind of love this concept because they're like, you know, reaching out with the arm and like really gingerly like SWAT. And then they, I'm assuming they, I, I didn't read the the rescue procedures. Uh, they're, they're probably available somewhere, but I imagine they kind of like SWAT it and they start, start the timer and they start counting up to, uh, to 80 seconds. And if the Omni antenna deploys, then they got to back away real quick because this thing is going to start spinning up. And so I kind of imagine they're all kind of like holding their breath and like, Ooh, and nothing happens. So they, they go and they do it again. They kind of slap it and kind of pull back and, <laughs> and wait a little longer. Anyway, uh, there was no danger of anybody getting blasted in the face, uh, by, uh, um, by a reaction control system because none of this works. So they decide to, to call it the end of the mission. Um, and, uh, they back away from, from Lisat three and, and leave it to, uh, to spin in the void on its own. <sighs> so when they get back on the ground, LeSAT-3 was declared a total loss. But the astronaut corps, well, Hughes, you know, is is in talks with, with NASA. And I kind of assume that, you know, some of this is due to uh, the fact that Hughes had been in close contact with NASA this whole time, because it's such a weird spacecraft. They probably got a lot of really good phone numbers in their book. And so uh, Hughes uh, does some more analysis and they're like, you know what? We, we think we can fix this. We think we know what's wrong. And, they, you know, they're talking to NASA and the astronaut corps is like, yes, let us go do it. They wanted to show that they had the right stuff. And so, uh, Hughes then turns around and goes back to their insurance company and say, Hey, this is, this is crazy. But if we, if we dump another 10 million into a fix, would you, would you pay for the repair? 
and the insurance company actually agrees. And then this is a fantastic, this is a fantastic deal for Hughes because they were not going to be fully reimbursed uh, by the insurance company. Uh, I think it was something like, you know, 50% coverage or something. So dumping an extra, uh, an extra couple of million into it and getting to go fix it. Like it shows off their expertise. It saves the mission. It saves money, yada, yada. Okay. So what's, what's the fix? Well, we need to, we need to dig into the vehicle a little deeper to find another single point failure source. And, uh, you know, the, the whole thing is just filled with, uh, with redundancy, but there is a single point failure source in the design, right? <laughs> the design will get you every time. Well, so there are the two switches, um, that tell the vehicle that it has, uh, separated, um, from its cradle inside shuttle. There's another pair of switches that detect whether or not the kick motor has been ejected. And it's not so much about detection. It's more about a really easy way to deactivate those timers, right? The, the timers are eating up electricity the whole time. So when we're done with them, we want to deactivate them and, uh, not worry about that, uh, that wasted energy. And we don't want to worry about them potentially firing off additional, uh, commands later on and, and maybe doing something, uh, a little, a little crazy. So we're going to just cut off their power. So these are, these are basically two circuit breakers. Um, if kick motor not found, break breaker, <laughs> break current. <laughs> um, and so when they went back into their design and started doing uh, a bunch of analysis, they realized that the tolerances were too loose and they didn't have a lot of margin for error on these switches. So the, the switches have an over travel region, um, which is basically their on position. You depress these switches and they allow current to flow. You, you undepress them <laughs> and they, they leave that over travel region and they, the contact is broken. And so the range of physical motion there is supposed to be that, you know, you cram the, the kick motor in and the switches are going to be switched. But, um, because their tolerances were a little too loose, the switches basically can't reach far enough to press up against the kick motor. Um, and so it turns out when they were doing this design analysis, they also did some like historical, uh, like organizational knowledge analysis. And they, they found a paper, uh, that was, or maybe more accurately a report, um, that was back from the F1 vehicle. And it turns out that when they were doing integration on F1, they noticed that these switches were not depressed and they had to adjust, uh, either the, the position of the kick motor or the mount for the switches. I'm not sure, but they had to adjust the thing to get those switches to depress again and enable those timers. So hmm. they're, they're assuming that with the launch stresses, um, the, the motor or the switch mount or something shifted enough that they fell out of this over travel range and, um, and, and they broke the circuit for the timers. The timers just do not get to activate. So the solution is going to have to be a little 
a little complicated, a little clever, because you can't just reach in and activate those timers or, or activate those switches. First off, they're not accessible on an EVA. And second of all, if you activate them, then the whole countdown timer starts up. And if you've activated them with people, it's going to be really tough to get the shuttle away from this satellite fast enough to keep everybody safe. Because, I mean, I guess you could, like, tape the arms shut and, like, reel out a piece of string or, you know, I'm sure there's some <laughs> some wacky idea that somebody came up with. But instead, uh, they decided to build a bypass box. The, the bypass box is actually a fairly complicated piece of equipment. Uh, at its simplest, it's a 13-hour timer. Uh, that gives them plenty of time to ingress shuttle and then back the shuttle away before anything else happens. The engineers were shocked um, when the operations team wound up calling their 13-hour timer a 12.99-hour timer. So the LESAT ejection was on 4-13-1985, 4 at 13.30 hours UTC. Mm-hmm. And it was documented... In the HSC System Engineering Mission Logbook on page 13. <laughs> also, not only is it 413, but you could say it's 1 plus 313, right? And, and 8 plus 5 from 1985, 8 plus 5 is 13. So <laughs> no wonder that when this thing failed and they had to go back out and fix it again, the operations team said, no, that's a 12.99 hour timer. That's funny. <laughs> okay. So uh, at its at its most basic, uh, the bypass box is a 12.99 hour timer. It has communications uh, equipment on it to talk to the ground. It has a battery uh, to, to power the timer and whatnot. It has a uh, connection to a test point on the vehicle that allows it to manually deploy the Omni antenna, uh, overriding the, um, uh, the, the two timers that, that didn't go off the first time. Then they also had a, a second piece of equipment called a dark mirror. Uh, and it's basically, um, just uh, you know, a, a black piece of metal that they can attach to the kick motor nozzle um, that'll heat up that nozzle and help thaw out the kick motor um, because the the kick motor doesn't have heaters in it. The the fuel tanks and everything else has heaters, um, which the bypass box can uh, can activate, but but not the the kick motor. And the the dark mirror was not just. Uh, you know, a piece of metal that they taped on there. It also had solar cells, temperature sensors, and an antenna to report the temperature of the kick motor back down to the ground. Now, all of this equipment was designed, built, tested, and delivered in six months, which is insane because it's not just Hughes designing, building, and testing it. It's also NASA making sure that they're happy flying it. And then, you know, at the same time, they're also flying astronauts out to Hughes to practice on the F-4 and F-5 vehicles. Um, really, I, I think this is just one of the lovely uh, quick turnaround kind of fixes that we, I don't know, I don't feel like we, we see this uh, anymore. We, we have so many computers that, you know, the fixes are all done digitally and, and all this has to be done with actual electronics. I don't know. I, mm. I, I love it. Maybe, maybe I'm just being nostalgic. Uh, cause there, there are plenty of things that happen today that are, are really interesting, but okay. Um, so the repair happened on STS 51 I 
Oh, good Lord. Uh, Deathkin in the chat says, sounds like a huge success. <laughs> that takes the cake. <laughs> good yeah, Lord. Yeah, that is not going to be the title. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so uh, SDS-51I rolls around, and they deploy LESAT-4, uh, and then they go rendezvous with LESAT-3, and they do this fix. Um, now, LESAT-3 had, at this point, been sitting in LEO for six months without power. Um, th this really is a, a horrible situation, and there are a lot of vehicles that would not have been able to recover. Um, like, all the batteries froze, all the propellant froze, and they were actually worried about propellant lines rupturing due to the the frozen propellant inside of them but the whole thing exceeded their qualifications uh substantially is the quote that i got from hughes it turns out lisat 3 actually was um one of the best performers in this constellation or in this fleet so they they fly up to the vehicle um they attach a de-spin arm i think is what they called it i don't know how they attached it but basically they're able to attach it while the thing is rotating at you know, 1.7 RPM. It's not 30. Uh, but then they kind of smack the arm a couple times as it goes around to slow the spin down. Uh, finally, they're able to grab it, uh, grab it by hand and bring it back down uh, to the cargo bay. I've actually got a funny story about that, like, like a small little story from this book I was just reading, uh, Bold Day Rise. It's all mm -hmm. about like the early shuttle missions and it's a lot of um, oral testimony. And basically... Uh, Ox was talking to Dick Covey about it and like, like how he's like, well, I, I could just grab the thing. And they're like, are you going to be able to be spin it that way? And he's like, look, and he takes a piece of paper and he just starts writing on. He's like, all right, so here you got me. And he draws this big, this big person on there. And here's the satellite. And here's Lee Sant three. And then uh, next to it, he goes and, and so here's Joe Allen and he draws this little stick figure <laughs> and here's uh. Palapa which Joe Allen had grabbed on a previous mission. And so he's like, so if you could do that, then I can grab this much bigger one. Cause I'm oh my commensurately gosh, that's larger. so funny. <laughs> mm -hmm. That yeah. is, that's really good. All right. So, so before we get out of this, uh, talking about grappling the vehicle, there's uh, a video that'll be in the show notes, uh, called space shuttle flight 20 post flight presentation. And it is, it's one of those space shuttle gems. Uh, the, the video is a good 20 minutes long. It's got excellent footage and images of, uh, of this vehicle and the fixes and the deployment. It's, uh, it shows what the deployment's supposed to look like. It's just fantastic. Um, I, I really hope that you, uh, or I really encourage you to take 20 minutes and go watch it or at least 10 minutes and click through it. Okay, so they, they grapple this thing manually. They install the bypass box and the, the heater on the, on the engine and they spin it up again by hand. Um, and it, it's just, it's kind of like anything your cradle can do, I can do better kind of a situation. Like, ha, hey, we don't, we don't need no stinking cradle explosive bolts. Nah, we got, we got people with gloves on. They, so they mainly spin it up, back away from it, and they have a totally successful repair. Um, getting back up to, uh, to geostationary orbit took a lot longer than usual. They followed a much, uh, a much altered flight plan. Uh, they took six months watching the, the solid engine heat up and, uh, and making sure that everything's okay. They call it thermal conditioning, which I think is a good all encompassing kind of term. Uh, they spent six months doing thermal conditioning. Then they spin up and, 
uh, then tell the override box to power up the kick motor timers and then they they head up to uh, to geostationary now remember this is lisat 3 and on uh 51l they also or 51i they also deployed lisat 4 and lisat 4 had a bunch of modifications um trying to prevent this exact failure from happening uh the the reasoning here not only is you know learn from your mistakes but also if f3 failed syncom was in risk of violating its contract to navy they had they had contracted with navy to put four spacecraft up into geostationary orbit and if uh, if f3 if the repair of f3 fails f4 had better work and you know uh ironically the f3 repair worked great F3 was uh, one of the best performing vehicles. I mean, like its its batteries, uh, the battery capacity, I think, was better on this than any of the other LeaseAts. Uh, but F4 made it up to Geo and failed after 40 hours of UHF <laughs> operations. Um, and that is also uh. fascinating, but I'm going to leave that story for another to hmm. All right. So uh, before we uh, end this segment, I had two fun little well, I had two tidbits about the LeaseSat program. First off, uh, Greg Jarvis was the bus systems engineer for Hughes. He was supposed to fly on STS-51I, but he wound up getting bumped to STS-51L due to politics. STS-51L was the Challenger disaster, and Greg Jarvis is one of the Challenger astronauts that we are now missing. I, I don't know what to say about this. I just thought it needed to be pointed out um, that this this engineer who uh, was a, a huge asset for Hughes, but, you know, also for humanity, we, we lost Greg Jarvis. And, and, you know, obviously it would have been somebody else if he wouldn't have, if he wouldn't have flown. But it, it touches on this story and, and I don't feel comfortable telling the story without uh, giving a nod. So space, uh, space is hard, I guess it's a, it's a shitty thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Yeah. No, it's true. Space is hard. If I remember correctly, it was because his, uh, payload was much more like it was low priority and they thought, Oh, we'll just tag it on to this other mission that has a little extra space. And we got to get this lease set stuff resolved ASAP. Is that about right? I believe you're correct. So now let's go on to a fun tidbit, and uh, this is going to be fun for Mike. I don't know how many other people are going to be super fascinated about this, but uh, I love this. Um, so Hughes claims that LeeSat was the first commercial communication satellite, and perhaps the first satellite ever, to utilize an onboard computer for most of its ACS functions, uh, ACS being Attitude Control System. And so like specifically... Everything on this space, everything re regarding the ACS was controlled by a computer except for the D-spin controller. Uh, everything else was run by a computer. And this thing was designed in 1979, at which time there were no qualified microprocessors that could do this job. So um, <laughs> their computer was implemented uh by George Zaguzzi, I think is probably how his name is pronounced, D-Z-E-G-U-Z-E. -E. So um, Zaguzzi, I'm assuming Zaguzzi, it is, uh, 
I'm assuming a really interesting uh, computer or electronics designer because he was able to basically build a computer out of a limited set of flight qualified parts. Um, so this implementation uh, was uh, four bit arithmetic logic units, a, an unspecified number, a 12 bit program sequencer and what is quoted as a handful of TTL chips, uh, transistor, transistor logic chips. Um, so uh, this thing is um, very simple. Uh, it had no uh, intrinsic multiplication capability. They just did repetitive addition, which great. Yeah, we can do that. And, uh, it was able to divide, um, but only by powers of two because it's to divide. It did right shifts, basically dropping, uh, dropping a significant digit off of a number. Uh, in total, uh, it had four K words of program memory and one K bytes of Ram. Uh, Deathkin in the chat asks, what's the instruction with? I don't know. Uh, this, this is what, this is the information they had on it. Maybe, maybe there's more, more info somewhere else, but, but yeah, I, I love that this thing, uh, is just, it's like, here we go. We, we, we can do things with these things. Uh, luckily they had the program sequencer, uh, cause if they didn't, if they didn't have that, I think this probably wouldn't have happened. Uh, but yeah, a handful of TTL chips just kind of cracks me up. So, so there you go. That's, uh, that's LeeSat. Um, it's a program with, uh, quite a few failures in it. Um, but also, you know, this, this brand new idea, a, uh, a vehicle that is designed for shuttle. Um, and that's, that's like the, the beauty of the shuttle era was that people started doing this kind of thing. It really was the golden age of shuttle. Yeah. Uh, that was, that was wonderful, Ben. Thank you. Isn't that <laughs> you great? Managed to, you managed to give us two shuttle missions for the price of one. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. I almost got up to four shuttle missions. I'll be honest. Well, David, I believe you are on board for next week, which mm -hmm. is the 19th through the 25th of April. Do you have a clue for us? I do. And the clue is in 2013, it's not just a steak sauce. Mm, so gotcha. pretty easy i feel like a pretty easy clue <laughs> well we'll see so some people yeah. might not eat might not use steak sauce and thus uh, make it much more difficult for them but for those of you who think you do know what the clue is or i mean encourage you i'm encouraging you take a shot anyway you know it's 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 good fun uh, to participate and so if you think you have an idea what the answer to that clue is then uh or what the event is then uh, you can shoot us an email or uh, tweet at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck. Good luck. Let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. Got four of those. Dennis, what's the first one? First up, we've got a Falcon 9 Block 5 that will be taking Enroll 85 uh, to orbit. And so this is, of course, a classified payload for the U.S. National Reconnaissance Office. They always have their creative patches. You can check out this one. Which uh, has the which says attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference, and it involves a little kitty cat uh, looking at its reflection and seeing a giant white tiger, um, and so uh, pretty pretty neat looking uh, logo. And so uh, this is going to take place on April fifteenth with a window from twelve fifty nine UTC to fourteen twenty five UTC, launching out of Vandenberg Space Launch Complex four E. All right. After that, we're not a hundred percent sure about this, uh, but we're talking about the Axiom One uh, Crew Dragon undocking and splashing down. Um, 
the sources are a little disagreeing, but it looks like they're converging <laughs> on what is on the Wikipedia page, um, which says um, that their undock date is going to be the 17th of April. Um, and their uh, deorbit and splash jam will happen the next day on the 18th of April. And that's, that's kind of all we have right now. So we're going to, we're going to assume that those are correct. Going to give you a heads up. If you want to watch it, you'll also have to do uh, a little more research. Hopefully there'll be better information uh, once the, the show is actually published. And then after that, on the 18th, uh, we have a Russian spacewalk, and this is Russian spacewalk number 52. The two cosmonauts performing this spacewalk will be Oleg Artmyev and Denis Matveyev. The spacewalk begins at 10.25 in the morning, and that's Eastern Daylight Time. You can watch that on NASA TV. I don't have any details on exactly what they're doing, but um, I think this is like one of seven planned spacewalks. The next one will be on April 28th, so about 10 days later, and they have subsequent ones after that. And it'll be the same two cosmonauts, So, um, and it'll be at about the same time, too, so they're just mm-hmm. kind of like lining them up every 10 days or so, um, but yep. You can check that out on NASA TV. And then finally, we have a window opening for a very exciting mission. And so this is an electron launch uh, from Rocket Lab. The mission's name is There and Back Again. And this will be the first time, I'm assuming that There and Back Again is a reference, to the first time that they will be trying to actually capture the first stage. Yeah. And so this is a, yeah, right? It goes under parachute and they have the helicopter come and pick it up. They've published exactly what their uh, targeted timeline is for the different steps of this uh, recovery, and so it should be really exciting. Uh, the mm-hmm. mission itself uh, is a commercial rideshare, so we've got ALBA Orbital, Asterix Astronautics, Aurora Propulsion Technologies, eSpace, Spaceflight, Swarm Technologies, and Unseen Labs on board. And so uh, the window uh, will open on Tuesday, April 19th, and... Uh, so at some point after that, keep an eye out and hopefully get to see the launch and a successful recovery. And like all of the Electron launches so far, this will be taking place uh, in Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand. The name of the mission there and back again, I think, is also a Tolkien reference, which I guess oh, yes. is fitting yeah. for yeah. Uh, yep. New Zealand. They like to make their <laughs> Tolkien references. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And that means it's time to deal with the show. So we will do that. And we would like to thank Ronald Jakes and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Mike, Deathkin, Chris, Chubby, McMahon, Colin, Kenton, Alex, the Greek, Delta V, VT, and Leon Running Man for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen. Or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at orbitalmechanics.com. All right, that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.